0: Okay today we're finishing or we're not finishing we're continuing our 12 and today we have one core question we're going to deal with and it's a simple question but it's probably one of the questions that we struggle with the most in our life who are we really who are you really It's a tough question because there's so many influences around us that tell us who we are. We walk into the the supermarkets, we read the magazines, we read books, we see on TV, all sorts of images. We have expectations from our bosses. We have expectations from our spouses. We have expectations everywhere that tell us, you should be like this. And on top of that, most of us, I would say all of us at some level, We really want to please other people and we want to succeed and we want to have the approval and accolades of others in some form or fashion. So you put all that together and it makes the answer to this question, this very simple question, sometimes a very difficult one because there are so many influences on who we are. And you know, the, the fact of the matter is, if you're, if you're a 50 or 60 year old, I'd like to say that this really doesn't apply to you, but I think if you're already that age, you know it already applies to you as much, because, because this whole definition of who we are, who God has wired us to be, what, what we really are at the core, not what other people think we are, not what we think we should be to please other people, but what we really are is a question that gets challenged every time we go through a life change. You get a new job, you get a new promotion. You go from having no kids to having kids to empty nest. And and at all those transitions in life, there's this tweak and sometimes even redefinition of of who we are and what God's doing through our lives at that time. And the truth be told, how clear we answer this question of who we are really determines the quality of and the satisfaction of our relationships and the level of contentment we will have in life. The more clear at every phase of our life that we are on understanding who we are really, not other people's projections of us, will determine the quality of our relationships and our level of contentment and joy. So, one of the clear messages today as well is, if we don't get a sober assessment of of that question if we don't really get that down for us and understand really who we are, then we're going to have a really hard time understanding how to fulfill God's divine destiny for our life. And he has a divine destiny for each one of us. In fact, Ephesians 2 says it this way, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has this before the foundations of the earth, before you even arrive at that place in your life. He has a plan. He has these things prepared for you to do that He defines as good and they're not just defined as good from His perspective. They're good when we experience them as well. They're the things that bring fulfillment. They're the things that bring satisfaction. They're the things that make us joyful and, and feel like life is worth living. That kind of good is what he's prepared in advance for us to do before we even get there. And today we're going to look at, at the life of Moses just briefly and then, and, then, and then talk about some applications as to how we can move ourselves more toward a sober self-assessment as well. But as we look at Moses, I want you to hear two things primarily. Moses' life demonstrates for us that this search for understanding who we are, that we can blow it. We can think more highly of ourselves. We can think more lowly of ourselves. We can, we can view ourselves in a way that isn't how God views us. And God's still going to work with us. He's patient. He's kind. He's still going to come to us. Moses' life illustrates that. And it's also an illustration of that this journey, this journey to discovering who we are is a constant lifelong thing that we do. Now the background to Moses' story. If you've watched Prince of Egypt, most of you probably know this, although I'm sure there's parts of that. I actually never watched that cartoon. Everybody watched that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, so I don't even know how accurate biblically it is. But I'm sure at least it gets you in the ballpark, if not, if not the accurate story. The background of it is that the Israelites have been in Egypt and for 400 years. And as they were in Egypt, uh, they grew and grew and grew in number and eventually they became a threat to Pharaoh and eventually the Pharaoh decided to put them in servitude to keep them in check. And, but then we see them growing even more to the point where Pharaoh comes to this decision that he says, hey, they are so numerous that they're going to probably someday revolt and take us over. So here's his solution. His solution was infanticide. He said, basically, for X number of years, every male born to an Israelite will be killed as a baby. And it's into that scene that we start to look at Moses and see his life, and see the foundations of his life, the things that began to shape him, all the experiences, the good and the bad, the expectations, the parentage, the DNA, everything that shapes who we are. We get to see, and we see in, uh, we see in Exodus 2 that he was, he was born to these courageous parents who decided, we're going to do what's right regardless. And somehow, can you imagine, how, how could you do this? They hid a pregnancy for nine months. And then they hid the delivery of the baby. And this is, you know, we're living in small houses with open windows. And how do you hide the crying of a baby from people around you? And and people not know that you've got a baby and they hide it. But they get to this point where they've hid him long enough and and they realize, oh, man, we're at the point where we're not going to be able to hide him anymore. And so they devise this plan. They make this, this floating little basket. And they stick him in the basket and they take him down to the Nile River and they place him in the Nile River right next to a place where one of the daughters of the Pharaoh comes regularly hoping that she will discover him, hoping that she'll have mercy, hoping that she'll adopt him or, or somehow have mercy. And and as we read the story, it's very short and very quickly shared, we realize that the Pharaoh's daughter does see him, does have mercy, does adopt him. And, and it just so happens that they instructed Pharaoh's older sister to stand nearby. And Pharaoh's older sister is winsome enough and wise enough that when she sees the opportunity, she steps forward. And, and so then uh, what ends up happening is, is Pharaoh's daughter says, I need somebody to nurse and care for this baby. And, and she says, I know exactly the person. So Moses' mom actually gets to be his nurse and gets to tell him the stories of the promises that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the stories of their history and the, and the promises of deliverance and and be a part of his life. And, and then in Exodus 2.11, it has this short phrase that says many years later. And we, we realize that if, you're not, if you don't really pay attention to this, the Bible sometimes skips years really fast. In one verse, we went from infant to 40 years old. And here's where the story goes. It says Moses had grown up and he went out to visit his people. He's grown up as this prince of Egypt. And he goes out to to visit his people. And and he he saw how they were doing forced labor. And during his visit, he saw an Egyptian whipping and and treating very poorly a Hebrew slave. And, And he looks around and makes sure in his mind that nobody's around. And he is angry at the mistreatment of his people by this Egyptian. And he kills him and buries him in the sand thinking he got away with it. But he comes out the next day, and the very next day he's walking around among the Hebrew people again, and he looks at them and sees a couple of Hebrews fighting each other. And he goes up to him and says, Why are you treating each other? Why are you hitting your neighbor like that? And the response is, Who do you think you are? Interesting question, isn't it? Who do you think you are? The man replied, Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Do you plan to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And the story goes on to to very clearly tell us that Moses became very afraid, realizing that this word was all over. It would get back to Pharaoh eventually, and and then Pharaoh would want to kill him for his injustice that he did. And so Moses flees to the land of Midian. You know, Moses in this instance... He's this he's this prince of Egypt. He's been raised with the best education. He's been raised with the best circumstance. He's he's been exposed to leadership at a level most of us have never ever even thought of experiencing. He's got success under his belt and, and he's powerful. It's it's well there's Pharaoh, but then there's Moses. You know, he's he's got it down, he's got the power around him in a realistic fashion. But yet he's a Hebrew. And he knows about his people and he comes into this and feels sorry for them and wants to deliver them. You know, sometimes, sometimes we as people get our assignment that God has called us to do right. Because we know the end of the story. We already know that Moses' call and his purpose in life was to deliver the people out of bondage. Sometimes we get that right, but we, but we mess up God's timing because isn't it so easy when we get in a new job or we finish college and get in a new job and we get promoted, especially if we get promoted quickly and we have success after success after success in some areas. Isn't it easy for us to start thinking, I can do this. It's, it's totally within my power to succeed here. And we just start... Walking through life, not even checking necessarily with God if, if this is really what we're supposed to do. And, and it's so easy to, to jump ahead and, in the correct assignment and, and get the timing wrong and, and do it in our own time, and do it in our own energy. But sometimes our estimation is not the fact of ourselves and the sober assessment is not too high. Sometimes it's too low. And we get to see that in Moses as well because we see as he, as he flees to Midian, we see him, the story pick up 40 years later, and, and he's developed this new, new life. He's got a new wife. He's got a family. And, and he's gone from the halls of, of the greatest nation in the world and the halls of power to now tending smelly sheep in the desert. He's just kind of no one, just kind of out in the middle of nowhere doing mundane stuff. And in chapter 3, we see the story start to pick up where he's walking one day through the wilderness and, and it's just this rocky, dry area trying to find grass and water for the sheep. And he looks over off in the distance and he sees this bush burning, but he takes another look and it's, it's not burning up. He's going, what, what is this? And he 's curious, Moses is this curious guy and and he walks up to it and 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 when he gets there, the angel of the Lord speaks to him because it 's God appearing to him in a in a way to speak to him and and Moses responds with fear and terror, realizing he 's in the presence of God and takes his sandals off and God speaks to him saying, you know what, years ago your idea of what your call was was right, but it was the wrong timing. And it says in verse 10 that God says, Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh, and you will lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You know, it's interesting, because a few years earlier in Moses' life, he would have been probably going, this is a piece of cake. I got this down. I know how the system works. I know who to go to. I know who to become allied with and making this decision happen. I've got it all down. I can do it. But instead, at this point in Moses' life, his reaction is very, very different because he's gone from having a puffed-up view to himself to a way too low view of who God has made him to be and who God's called him to be. And we hear one of the first of four excuses from Moses. Moses' response to, to God is, but, but who am I? You see, 40 years ago it was, who do you think you are? And now it's gone to, who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a failure. I've been out here 40 years. I'm way too old. I'm 80 years old, God. I'm way too old to do anything. What do you think? What do you what are you doing? I mean, do you got the who am I? You know, it's so easy. When's the last time you allowed a low estimation of yourself to prevent you from doing what you believe God was asking you to do? Maybe it was maybe it was something in your work that that you felt like God was bringing an opportunity and you wanted to do it. But but you, you just didn't trust yourself. You didn't believe you were good enough to do that or when 's the last time, or maybe maybe it's been in, in this whole idea that we 've been talking about of trying to learn to live our life as friends with faith and 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 maybe the last time God asked you to to reach out and actually start trying to breach the topic of, of faith and, and have this mutual relationship with someone, not to beat them over the head, not to, not to convince them, not to be a salesman, because that's not who we are. That's not who we're supposed to be, but, but just to have an honest friendship where we can actually talk as mutual friends about our faith. And, and maybe you just looked at that and said, but, but who am I to do that? I, you know, who am I? I'm nobody. How can I have that conversation with them about you, God? But God's answer to the question is, I'll be with you. You know, the solution to the question, who am I? I'm a nobody. Is not us learning that we are somebody. It's not learning that it's all about us. It's not really the question isn't even who am I. The question is who is God? Because God's answer to the question of who am I is I'll be with you. It's about who I am, not who you are. And that's what God's saying to us. Excuse number two, in Exodus 3.13 we see Moses get into this and, and, and God says, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, they won't believe me. They'll ask, which God are you talking about? What's his name? And, and then who should I tell him sent me? He's basically saying to God in his excuse, "I'm not, I'm not godly enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not smart enough. To do this, God, why would you ask me? I'm not smart enough. I don't even know how to tell them who you are. You see, let's go back again to our faith conversations with our friends. It's so easy for us to fall into this trap ourselves because we think, in order to have a faith conversation with a friend that's honest and open, we have to be the answer people, we have to have the answers, we have to be smart enough. And God's saying to Moses and he says to us, it's that's not the point. You don't have to be smart enough because just tell them who I am to you. Tell them who I am. And, and in, in this instance, he says to Moses, I am that I am. Use that term. I'm the one who existed before all of time. Just tell them that. Because, again, it has more to do with who I am than you, Moses. And if we skip down to verse 18, we see God's patience and, and his willingness to even work with Moses in this even more, where he says basically to him, he says, the people of Israel will indeed accept the message if you go and just tell them that. And then skip down a couple more verses around 2021. I forget where it was exactly now. But he says, not only will the Judah, Judah and the Israelites accept your word that, that I sent you, but even the Egyptians will eventually accept it. And when you leave, they will spoil you with riches on your way out. God goes this extra mile with Moses trying to say, I'm with you. Go, not because of you. Go because I've asked you to. Go because I'm with you. But Moses isn't, isn't quite done with the excuses. And, and in 4, 1, chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 1, we see Moses again protesting. And he says, look, God. They won't believe me. They won't do what I tell them to. They just, they'll just say, the Lord never appeared to you. This is the excuse that, God, I'm not credible. I'm not a credible witness. Why would they believe me? I'm not godly enough. Maybe my life is all messed up. Maybe I'm not living well enough. You name it. How many reasons could you give why you're not credible to tell people about God or to represent him? We all have those excuses because none of us are perfect. None of us know everything. And God's solution to that for Moses is this, this amazing patience. He says, okay, okay, yeah, they may not think you're credible, so here, let me, let me have you do this. He says, take your staff. You've been having this trusty staff around for a while. Throw it on the ground, and, and God makes it turn into a snake, which if you read the whole story, it's really interesting because even the magicians later on you'll see were in, in Egypt were able to do this. But he throws down his, his his staff, and it becomes a snake. And, and Moses has I mean, spent 40 years in the desert. I mean, he's used to poisonous snakes all over the place, and, and he knows this shouldn't be done. And God says, now no, pick, pick it up by the tail. And, and it becomes a snake again. And God says, okay, if they're not worried about you being credible, you think that's good enough? And Moses goes, yeah, yeah. I mean, if that happened for us, wouldn't you say to God, yeah, I think that's probably credible enough. And God says, okay, yeah, that's just plan A. Okay, if they don't believe that, here's another plan. Well, go ahead, Moses, take and stick your, your hand in your cloak and, and, and just do it and then, and then pull it out. And, and, and he pulls it out and it's, it's all turned white with a leprosy skin disease. And, and God says, what is it? And he says, it's leprosy. He says, stick it back in again and, and take it out. And it comes out and it looks like a baby's bottom. And he goes, is that, is that good enough? You think that's credible enough? You think they'll believe that? And, and then Moses, I'm sure Moses is going, yeah, God, I think they'll believe that. I just hope it always turns back, you know? And, uh, and, and then he says, even if that's not good enough, then just go take a cup of water from the Nile and pour it out on the sand and it'll turn to blood. So God bends over backwards, to, again, to say, you know what, it's not about your credibility. And when God calls you to do something, it's not about how credible you are. It's not about your reputation. It's, not about, it's about his reputation. It's about his credibility. And can we trust? This is really where our whole series has been emphasizing the last few weeks. Can we trust God's character? And can we trust his promises for you? Not for somebody else, for you. Can we do that? But the amazing thing is that is that Moses is still a slow learner. He's had 40 years in the desert to get really set in his ways and he's got one more excuse in him. And in 410 it says says he basically is is Pleading with God, saying, please, God, please, God, not me. Would you send somebody else? Because he says, this job needs somebody who's a great orator. I mean, we're going to be going into the halls of power, and the only way you can influence there is to be really eloquent and really powerful in your speech. And God, I just am not a good speaker. So you got the wrong guy. This is the excuse of, I'm not gifted. I don't have the gifts to do this. You got the wrong guy, God. You, sh- you, need- you, need to get- you need to get somebody else over here who can talk really well. I'm not gifted. And God's answer in 4.11 is, Who makes a man's mouth? Who makes him duff- d- deaf or dumb, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, you go, and I'll tell you what to say. So don't worry about it. We see this even in the New Testament. We see this excuse in the New Testament. Jesus' disciples, they're all, most of them are all from uneducated, poor backgrounds. And and Jesus says to them, You're going to get dragged before kings and queens. And they're kind of going, Me? I'm going to go before kings and queens? What, What are you talking about, God? And he says, Don't worry about it because I've given you everything you need. Don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give it to you at the time because I've given you the Holy Spirit. The reality is that God has given each and every one of us, when we follow him, everything we need to do, we need to have in order to do what he asks us to do. But Moses still, even after he's convinced that God has has, uh, answered all of his questions, and that God has called him to do this. And, and he's going to supply what he needs to do it. Moses is this, this amazingly reluctant, looking at himself, really lowly person. And he comes back to God and says, okay, I, I understand, but Lord, could you just send somebody else? He's no longer arguing. He's no longer making excuses. He's just saying, not me, God. Could you send somebody else? And here's the amazing part of that. God, yeah, God gets a little angry if you look in the text at that. He gets angry that he's convinced him so much that he doesn't do that. But God still doesn't give up on the call for his life. God doesn't give up on him. He still has a level of patience that says, okay, I'll accommodate you. Now, the accommodation isn't the best thing because what God basically does is say, okay, Moses, I'm, I'm a little tired of arguing with you. I'm just going to send your brother. Your brother is this guy who can talk to anybody. He's just this eloquent orator, And he, but but you know when God accommodates stuff and, and we don't always... Was go with them. sometimes the accommodation isn't the best and so not only did he accommodate him by giving him Moses or Aaron to speak for him but but Aaron's this people pleasing guy who who is this artist and and there's problems that come along with him because when people get on his case later on he builds this uh, golden calf and leads the people into rebellion and and he causes problems as well and so you know the, the the life lesson here is it'd be a whole lot better for us to be obedient without having to be accommodated but but God is patient nonetheless in an amazing way. How many of us would be patient that long in that way? Moses' trust in God's promises and God's character was reluctant. That may be an understatement, but it was still there. And God honored that. He was taking baby steps to his sober self-assessment. And in that process, he says, I'm a nobody. And God answers it saying, I go with you and I'll never leave you or forsake you is what Jesus tells us in the New Testament. So when we have that excuse that I'm a nobody, we, just, we can lean on that. Jesus says, I'm with you forever. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And Moses goes, I'm not smart enough. And when we say that as well, God comes back and says, look, I've, I've got the answers. And Philippians 4.13 says this, You can do all things, not on your own, but through Christ who strengthens you. You can do all things. He's given you everything you need to trust him, to step out and do what he's called you to do. When we say to God, I'm not credible, no one will believe me, God. He comes back and says, I'll empower you and he says it again throughout the bible but in one place in 2 Timothy 1:7 it says this for god has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear but of power and of love and a sound disciplined mind god has given us those things i'm not gifted and that's something we're going to talk about today in the r12 this week in the r12 journey in your small groups so we're going to be talking about the fact that god has gifted you romans 12 says it It says in a paraphrase, he says, basically, according to the grace given me, I have given you spiritual gifts to supply everything you need to be who I've called you to be. But it's your responsibility to get a sober assessment. And it's your responsibility to learn to trust my promises and my character. Are you, are you, are you beginning to see why it's so important that we start to peel back all the messages we've had about who we are, whether it's from the media, whether it's from the romance novels that we read, or, or from the, or from the magazines we read, or the, or the commercials? Why it's so important to pull that stuff back to be able to start to see who we really are, because there's so much in our world that implants upon us who we are that prevents us from seeing God. And, you know, I looked it up yesterday. The, uh, the, the average 30-second Super Bowl commercial now costs $3 million. And yet we'll have people walk around in life and say, oh, reading this or watching this or doing this really doesn't impact how I think about myself. If that's true, then why are there people betting $3 million on 30 seconds that they're going to change your thinking? In 30 seconds. You see, so much of this just subtly comes in. We can't be immune to those things. And so it's so important for us to step back. Because advertising will always tell us, you don't measure up. Because the only way they can get you to buy something is if you're discontent with your life and you need what they're offering. But if we go to God and we learn to have a sober self-assessment, we start saying no to the things that tell us things about ourselves that are not really right. We start saying yes to renewing our mind to what God wants us to know about who he is and who we are and what life is about. When we get a sober assessment on who we are, then we have the ability to stand strong and make wise choices regardless of the messages around us. And we have the ability to follow God in a level of freedom and see the false messages as being false rather than accepting them. But it's all about a sober self-assessment. And and Moses' life reveals that a sober self-assessment is a prerequisite to really being able to walk fully in the divine purpose and plan God has for us. So our key, r 12 passage this week is Romans 12, 3. It says, for by, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober, sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. And then it's going to go on from that passage and talk about the gifts that he's given you. So what we've learned so far in this whole journey is, is we need to be surrendered. We need to give all. We need to put all of our chips in the middle. And we need to learn to say no to certain things that are, and no to the things in life that are conforming us to something that is not what God wants us to think or be or feel about ourselves or life or others. And we need to start saying yes to renewing our mind so that we can start to see how God wants us to do that, how God has wired us. But how do we do that? You know? Just as Moses' background and his experiences, his upbringing, his education, his pain, his disappointments, his successes, his failures, all of that played a role. All of of that God used to shape who he was. So also we could benefit from going through some of those types of processes as well with our own selves of of thinking through where's where's God been in all the areas of our life. One of the most powerful experiences I ever went through was called Refocusing Leaders, and it was a three-day experience. I was at a table with uh, six guys. There were six of us total, and uh, they asked all sorts of questions like, let's put your life on a timeline. We actually developed a timeline over the three days, and they said things like, okay, who are the three most important people in your life that impacted who you are more than anybody else? Who are the three, What are the three most important events that shaped you? What are the pain points along the way? And and how did God prove himself faithful through that? Or how do you think God is is proving himself faithful through that? You know, a lot of times the pain in our life, God doesn't necessarily bring it, but God is in the business of wanting to turn all of it to define a positive good of who we are. Some of you have been through horrendous pain, horrendous difficulty in your life. God wants you to take time to look back on that and say, God, maybe maybe it's maybe it's even hard for me to see where you were in the midst of it, but where where have you been in it since then? How have you worked in spite of that to redeem me, to be good in my life? And giving me stuff, and, and we went through this whole process. And the amazing thing was not just the impact it had on my life, and bringing clarity, which which the greatest clarity for me during that experience was really really learning not just what my strengths were, but what my weaknesses were was even more important for me. Because learning to be content, because how many of us, you know, we've all been through the strengths and weaknesses. Most of us have at one t- point in time probably taken some sort of inventory, right? And helped identify strengths and weaknesses. But let me ask you, on a daily basis, how content are you in living with those strengths and weaknesses? Or or do you still go I wish I wasn't this way. I wish I wasn't that way. I wish I could be this way. I don't like that weakness. And learning to become content with our strengths and our weaknesses, how God wired us is so important. One of the men in the group, his name was Dan, uh, had a profound experience through this process. Uh, around the table, along with me, they were the, the rest of the guys were all from, they were all church leaders, and they were all from a different movement except for me, and, and one of the guys was a regional head over several hundred churches, and another guy was his assistant, and he was a retired Boeing executive, one of the top engineers at Boeing, and then retired early and was helping out in the church. And then two other guys sitting at the table were pastors of churches, 1,500 and 2,500, fairly successful. All these guys were recognized as the most successful people in their arenas in their church and then there was Dan he was a guy who had been at seven churches in 20 years and never never led a church more than 150 and at the end of the time together from him doing his timeline he was in tears Not tears of sadness, but tears of joy because all of his life he had looked at these guys. In fact, one of the guys at the table had taken over one of his churches when he left it. And that church just exploded. And and throughout half his life he walked around saying, why couldn't that have been me? Why can't I have that kind of success? Why am I not successful? What makes me inferior that I can't do that kind of a promotion in my own work world? And at the end of the time, he realized what God had gifted him at, what God had always done throughout not just his ministry, but every area of his life. He was wired to go to hurting people who were depressed on the decline. And he was wired to go into churches of 30 to 60 that were dying, that were depressed and on the decline, ready to just go away and restore health. And that was his role. And one of the more powerful moments came when this guy who had taken over his church said to him, I've taken over several churches in my ministry career, and this was the healthiest we could not have grown had it not been for the work you did. And I could never do what you do. You see, learning to have a sober self assessment. This guy is in his late forties. And all this time, his definition of success, his definition of who he needed to be to successful, to be successful was wrong. Because of the sake of time, I'm getting a little long-winded today. That never happens, right? (laughs) Um, I want you to pull this out. We're going to skip one thing I did. You know, for me, in the first service, we just went through and I talked about the strengths and weaknesses that I have, and I asked people to hold up their red, yellow, and green cards as to whether that was a strength or a weakness of theirs. And I think an exercise like that is important We're not going to take time for it because of time now. But I think that kind of an exercise is important because it's so often we feel like, uh, especially when we're around overachieving professionals, which a lot of you are, we feel like the other people around us don't have this weakness that we have. And you know what? One of the things that's important in, in learning to share our strengths is that, is that when we think about sober self-assessment, so often not only is it hard for us to share our weaknesses, but it's hard for us to even share our strengths because we think if we share our strengths, we're prideful. But you know what? If we have a true picture of how God has wired us, then we should be able to talk, be able to talk freely without pride, without pretense about how we're wired in terms of our strength as well. So what I want you to do is I want you to take this card out of your program and uh, I want you to, maybe even if you want to sit around at the end of the service and take some time, I want you to fill out what you think in your own words are your top three strengths and top three weaknesses. And then sometime this week I want you to take time and talk with somebody. Here's Here's some tips of how you can follow through with this more. In your life. Some practical steps. First one is. Uh, I don't think this is up on your thing. Is to actually read the Bible. We've talked about that. we talked about the soap thing. But, but, but here's the deal. We don't read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. Right? We read the Bible. Why? Because we need input on how to see God accurately. And we need input into our life on how he sees us accurately. Without that we don't even have a basis to begin to come to a sober self-assessment of ourselves because it's not about what we want to be it's about who god created us to be and us discovering that and finding the joy of that good in our lives and then uh, take your strengths and weaknesses card and talk with some people about it you know just have a conversation or maybe you're over coffee sometime this week with someone sit down and and just ask the questions who were the three most important in your, people in your life who shaped you who you are more than anybody else, whether it was for good or for bad? And what were the three most important events that shaped you and who you are in your life? You know, just have that conversation. Talk with people about it. And, and talk with people who know you well and trust, and you trust, and, and they can give you even some more input in that because they may have insights in that process that you don't have. One of the other ways that we're going to have a handoff for those of you that really want to pursue this, uh, you know, we're coming, a few weeks, we're coming to the end of the R12 small group stuff, and I'm guessing that many of you, if not all of you, are going to want to continue in that process. So what's next? Well, one of the possible next things that we're going to recommend, we're going to also come out with other recommendations for the small groups is we're going to recommend that you maybe consider doing the strengths finder six or it's a six or you can, maybe seven weeks if you, if you do full seven weeks of, uh, of a small group process where you actually take this inventory that's well tested and, and you talk about it both from a biblical perspective and a practical perspective of who am I? What am I really strong in? How has God wired me? And it's a great process. We had a group go through it earlier in the year, and, and uh, you, know, if you if you're unsure whether it's a really good process, I can refer you to some of the people in that group who would tell you it changed their life. And uh, it was a wonderful process. And after the first year, we're going to have a, uh, we haven't got it scheduled quite yet, but we're going to have a spiritual gifts class because the reality is God has made us naturally certain ways. But you know what? There are areas in my life that make no sense for success being there because God has given a spiritual gift that is outside of even my natural abilities. And God has given and wants to give each of you that same type of thing in your life. So how do we discover that? Actually, uh, I haven't seen, I'll just be honest, I haven't seen a lot of classes that I really like the way they run on that, so we're trying to redevelop it. And one possibility is we may actually have this timeline exercise as a part of that class. Uh, That's not set in stone, but but, uh, just to be able to reflect on what has God done in my life, where has his power shown up, and maybe I haven't recognized it, all throughout my life in a way that really defines who I am and who God's called me to be and you know probably the most important thing you can do Ephesians 2:10 says you are God's workmanship that word workmanship could be could also be talked about you are God's poem you are his work of art You are are his Rembrandt painting. You You are his tapestry. You are this beautiful thing that he is creating. Do you believe that promise? Do you really believe that about yourself? That you are this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful painting that God's created? And then do you believe that he really has promised and will follow through with preparing good works for you to do in advance? Good in your mind, good in your mind, not just his mind, but things that you will walk into and be surprised with and really believe that, man, my life is worth living. This is great to be a part of. And, and can we learn then if we have that expectation to watch, walk each day with this, with this kind of curiosity? that kind of walks through the day saying, God, where, where's the next good thing you've prepared for me? What's, what do I get to do today? And learn to celebrate that. You know, one of my weaknesses is, I, is I, I tend to be a problem solver and I forget to celebrate, but it's so important. It's so important just to remind ourselves and celebrate the good things that God gets us, lets us. I mean, you may have a cruddy day, but was there a good thing in there? Was there one good thing that He let you do? Can we celebrate that and say, Thank you, God, because this was a good thing today. Lord, thank you so much for this time together and for the fact that you do believe in us. Lord, yeah, uh, sin is sin has certainly marred our lives, but you created us good. You created us for a good purpose. And your character, your character can be trusted. Your promises, Lord, we can trust. Lord, would you help us to walk deeper into that this week, Lord? For the areas where we where we have not allowed ourselves to trust your promises to us, maybe it's okay to trust promises for other people, Lord, but not us. Would you help us to trust you more this week? Would you trust us, help us in the midst of of the fear that we might face in in responding to the things that we feel like you're calling us to do? Lord, would you help us to to fear your character and, and reverence your character and your promises more than the fear that we feel and to just walk courageously in faith into those things, even when we don't feel like it, so that we can, Lord, discover these good things, these wonderful things that you prepared in advance the way that you've prepared and planned to bring joy to your heart, to our lives, and to other people, because we lived and we lived your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. If you came here today and you have uh, prayer needs, maybe you've got some sickness or something going on in the family or just something you need prayer for, uh, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, let's, let's celebrate God's goodness and let's believe in his workmanship, his tapestry, his work of art that he's doing in our lives. God bless. Have a great week.